Cosgrove, and welcome to WLIW-FM's live coverage of East Hampton Library's 18th annual Authors' Night. I'm joined by WLIW-FM's Michael Mackey. Hello, Mr. Mackey. Good evening, Brian. 1897, the East Hampton Free Library opened. I've been there many times. 1897. 1897. We're celebrating the 125th anniversary today. Michael, I'm looking forward to interviewing some authors, one of the 100 or so that are here this evening with you. We have a lot of terrific authors with us, and we will be interviewing them on air. You'll hear them speak and uh, perhaps be inspired to get their books. Either borrow them from the library or go out and buy them. That's right. And you can go to authorsnight.org for more information. Sounds terrific. You know oh. who else is with us? Another celebrity. Who's that? Our VP, General Manager, Diane Michelli. Diane. You're very kind. I think you guys are the celebrities, along with all of the authors here. It's such an exciting night. This is such a great community event to support the library and the community. I'm really excited to be interviewing so many of the authors, including Karen Brooks Hopkins from the Brooklyn Academy of Music, hopefully Katie Cork, my former colleague from the Today Show and NBC with her memoir going there and many others. And with us also is, of course, Gianna Volpe from Heart of the East End. Thank you, Diane. It is a beautiful afternoon here in Herrick Park. Definitely very excited about interviewing, hopefully, more than three authors, but you never know what we're going to have time for. I've got Sheila Flynn DeCoste, as well as Jeffrey Lyons, but first, the one and only Jack Graves from right here in East Hampton, the East Hampton Star. And I know that you are going to be interviewing Dennis Babasak of the East Hampton Library, so take it away. That's right. Um, Dennis is... Have you? Oh, it's great to be here. Dennis Babasak is the East Hampton Library Executive Director. Now, has the past two years been done virtually? Uh, we did a small in-person event last year, but we limited it to 200, and we only had 25 authors. It was not what we really you know feel like authors night should be and and is and today we're back in full force the way it should be well we've got quite a crowd already and it just opened up at five o'clock yeah we're expecting close to two thousand people oh my um, goodness you know herrick park is the place that we belong and it, it's really the heart of the village all day long people were walking up saying we can't wait for you to open the gate later today <laughs> So we're, we're thrilled about it. This is WLIW-FM's live coverage from East Hampton Library's 18th annual Authors Night. I'm talking to the executive director, a man who has a big part in putting this together, Dennis Fabisak. And this must be no small feat of coordinating 100 authors to get under the same tent today. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of work, but we have <laughs> uh, some great committees that work on it. The entire library staff is working on it. Um, and, you know, after 18 years, we've figured out the way we like to do it and the way it should be done. And, and we think we put on a great event. It's probably evolved quite a bit since the first one. Yeah, absolutely. The first one, we, we actually didn't have a, a tent, an author signing in a tent. We only had some dinners. Oh, no kidding. Was... Uh, and then the second year, we had 20 authors and, and it was a really small event. Uh, but now, you know, we, we settled on 100 authors as what we should have. And... People have really embraced it as one of their favorite events of the summer. I think it's become a huge deal in the world of uh, literary events as well, right? It's probably one of the biggest. Yeah, you know, Bob Caro, who, who's one of our co-chairs every year, uh, and we, we love him dearly. Oh, He's, my goodness, He said Bob this Caro. event energizes him about writing and, and what books really mean to people, seeing them so happy and talking to authors who are you know, rock stars in their mind. Right. Um, and walking around and getting their books signed, it's, it's just 
an incredible event, both for the authors and for the guests. Well, Robert Caro is, uh, he's, he's a heck of an author. He's A couple great. of Pulitzers and yeah, uh, yeah. many others, right? Yeah, probably more in him. So, so as, as, you know, mentioning Robert Caro, who are some of the other folks that are here tonight as well? Uh, we, well, we have Bill Bratton, who's, who's right gonna, in front of yeah. us, who's going to talk in a minute. Yeah, he'll be talking to Michael uh, Mackey, yeah. <laughs> we have Tina Brown, who we're really excited to have for the first time. Uh, Brian De Palma, the first time. Neil deGrace Tyson is here for the second time we've had him. Nelson DeMille is, is a huge supporter of our event. His son Alex is here with him for the first time. Uh, Tia Williams. You know, right. They, they, we, we try to really you know, have some authors that are our favorites that come back every year and then have a real good mix of new authors that we've never had before. Uh, you know, plenty of Pulitzer Prize and best-selling books. I guess you must be faced with the fact of having to turn some folks away at this point. We, we I guess, right? We turn away hundreds of authors. I would imagine that must be a tough. That must be a tough yeah. position to be in. Yeah, that's actually the worst part of the entire event. I it's, bet it it's is. The number of people we turn away. That's right, because once again, we're at East Hampton Library's uh, Authors Night in Herrick Park in the village of uh, East Hampton, and there are 100 authors here, and it's an extraordinary evening to come down, chat with the authors, get their uh, latest books signed, and this is a, a big deal as far as raising money for the library for them to do what they do each year, right? Yeah, absolutely. We, we're raising more than $400,000 in today's event, and that's, you know, more than 10% of our annual operating budget. Gotcha. So, and as far as libraries go, you know, that, that's one of the bigger library fundraisers that's out there in the United States. I urge folks, if you can't make it down here to Herrick Park in the village of East Hampton, you can go to authorsnight.org and get an excellent feel for it. So maybe put it on your schedule for next year. But folks can come in, right? And they can get yep. admission. They can pay for admission right at the yeah, time. Yeah, we're selling tickets right at the gate and we'll be here till 730. That's right. And then also there is, after this event, which goes till 730, uh, there's going to be uh, approximately 20 different dinner parties scattered about, right? Yeah, we, we actually have 25 different dinners at beautiful homes around the village of East Hampton and, and surrounding areas. Uh, and each dinner has somewhere between 15 and 40 guests uh, with authors as the, the guest of honor. And those are really a great experience if, if you've never gone to it before. Absolutely. You know, I got to say before I hand this off to Michael Mackey, um, is that you know, libraries really came through for me, and I know for the, the public in general during the pandemic, you know, um, so many Zoom opportunities were made available, not only by the East Hampton Library, but so many East End libraries and in general across the country. And now they've just kind of expanded. Libraries are really the nerve center of any community. And uh, there's live music now, as you well know, in many, many libraries, and they're just branching out in so many different ways uh, to uh, serve the community. And I think what you do is, uh, is very commendable. I admire what you do, Dennis. Oh, thank you very much. Absolutely. So um, I want to thank you, Dennis uh, Fabisak, uh, the executive director of Authors Night and the East Hampton Library. Nice to see you. And again, we're here at uh, Herrick Park in East Hampton, WLIWFM's live coverage of the 18th annual Authors Night. And I'm going to hand it over to my colleague, Michael Mackey. Thank you, Brian. Joining us now is William Joseph Bratton. He's an American law enforcement officer and businessman who served two terms as the New York City Police Commissioner, 1994 to 96, and 2014 to 2016. He previously served as the Commissioner of the Boston Police Department, 1993 to 94, and Chief of the LAPD in Los Angeles from 2002 to 2009. Currently, William J. Bratton is Executive Chairman, Risk Advisory for the global CEO advisory firm Tenio. Frequently referred to as America's Police Commissioner, Bill Bratton's latest book, written with Peter Nobler, The Profession, a memoir of policing in America, originally 
published in June of 2021, is now out in paperback with an epilogue. Welcome, Mr. Commissioner. It's great to be here. Sir, given your 50-plus years in law enforcement and corporate security, plus serving as co-chair of the Homeland Security Advisory Council, you have had extensive opportunity to work with the U.S. Department of Justice and the Federal Bureau of Investigation. So now that these agencies seem under siege, being referred to as an insidious deep state by former President Donald Trump and his supporters, which include right-wing broadcasters and many Republican elected officials, what is your assessment of DOJ and the FBI? Is any of this vociferous Trump-era criticism justified? Well, I think we're going to find as the various investigations unfold and more information becomes available, uh, we'll get a clearer picture. Right now, we're uh, almost in the fog of war, if you will, that uh, the uncertainty about what is happening. Certainly, the former president's claims, uh, believed by many of his followers, being on the law enforcement side of the issue for 50 years, I've got a lot of confidence in the Justice Department, the FBI, that I've worked closely with for most of those 50 years. But it's a very uncertain time in our democracy, in our history. And uh, who would have ever thought it would reach, have reached this point? It's, uh, I certainly never did. It's, it's been almost six years since your last day as NYPD police commissioner. It seems recently the headlines are more and more scary, if you will. New York Post just a couple of days ago. Stabbings on rise in NYC during surge in major crime. Even the New York Times recently, along a subway line's 31 miles, nagging crime, fears test riders resolve. Ridership is down, even though crime levels have swayed the same. Some New Yorkers who ply the longer subway route say the city feels unmoored. Did the city feel unmoored to you back in 2016? And is crime and disorder really on the rise again in the five boroughs now? In 2018, two years after I left, during the tenure of my successor, Peter O'Neill, and ironically, during the mayorality of Mayor de Blasio, that was the safest year in the history of New York City. Murders under 300, overall serious crime under 100,000. Safest year. Now in 2022, we're seeing a continuing rise in crime. Overall crime in New York's up by 37%. Shootings and murders are down a few percentage points, but every day the headlines are about more shootings and murders. Subway crime is up an astounding 60% over the last several years. Uh, I never would have predicted that would ever happen again in New York. Who do you blame? Uh, I blame the politicians because I think this has been a situation created by them in their criminal justice reform efforts. Bail reform, raise the age, uh, the, close, the, the potential closing of Rikers. COVID had an impact, certainly shutting down the courts that are not up to full speed. But um, it is a um, tough time. And Mayor Adams is trying. Uh, the NYPD is trying, but they're down several thousand officers. City Council doesn't want to hire more police. Legislation Albany doesn't want to reform the reforms. My prediction is it's not going to get better anytime soon, unfortunately. And I'm usually an optimist and helped to turn it around several times before in the subway and the streets. It's going to be more difficult this time because we had partners in the 1990s. We had district attorneys that worked with us, city council that worked with us, mayors that worked with us. Uh, that's not the case right now. We have a mayor that's working with the police, but the DAs and the legislature and the city council spend more time defending the criminals than they do working with the police. 
What are your thoughts about state government, Governor Hochul and uh, Letitia James and and that administration? Well, similarly, uh, the Attorney General has uh, been uh, busy going after the NYPD on a number of issues. She's a strong supporter of bail reform, criminal justice reform, so that's problematic. Governor Hochul uh, has been campaigning on the issue that she reformed the reforms, but I don't think the reforms have been significant enough. Uh, because as indicated by the continuing rise in crime, not only in New York City, but in New York State, many other cities in the state are experiencing these rising crime rates. Uh, part of the issue is letting too many people out of jail too soon. Uh, also, not enough funding going to it dealing with the issue of the mentally ill, something that ties the police up in a phenomenal way and creates so much of the havoc that we see on the streets and the subways. And when we see each other, we'll heal. We'll heal as a police department, we'll heal as a city, we'll heal as a country. How do people really learn to see each other and what happens when we do, when we do really get to know each other? Is that going to be good or bad? The expression you're referring to was one uh, Sweet Alice community organizer, black community organizer in Los Angeles, uh, when I was leaving as chief of police that uh, and she said to me, uh, Chief Brad, you know why we like you so much? And I said, Sweet Alice, no, why is that? She said, because you see us, you really see us. We had a time in the 1990s in Los Angeles, certainly 2008, 2009, where we weren't looking past each other. We weren't talking past each other. We were talking with each other. We saw each other. In New York City at the moment, in the country at the moment, uh, too much yelling and screaming at each other and not seeing each other, that we are looking past each other. Where I describe it as uh, similar to World War One, where everybody's in their trenches. There's no man's land, where everybody's just lobbing grenades at each other. Uh, I'm actually part of that uh, during this conversation. I've uh, spent some time basically expressing my frustration with the political leadership in the state at this time. Uh, but I'm an optimist. We straightened it out several times before. New York is an extraordinarily resilient city. Uh, at some point in time, that we'll start seeing each other working together again. And maybe as a country, that'll happen also. But unfortunately, I don't think it's going to be anytime soon. I hope we do learn to see each other sooner rather than later. Isn't that the truth? We've been speaking with Bill Bratton, The Profession, a memoir of community, race, and the arc of policing in America. Thank you, Bill Bratton. You may not be the most famous policeman ever, but perhaps you are. But we know at least in Hampton Bays you are. So thank okay, you very and, much. And to your listeners, come on down here to East Hampton. They've got quite a night going for themselves here. Thank you, sir. Okay. I'm Michael Mackey with 88.3 WLIWFM at the East Hampton Library's Authors' Night. And now we're going to hear from Diane Michelli. Hi, Diane. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Commissioner. Much appreciated. And I'm here with Karen Brooks Hopkins, President Emerita of the Brooklyn Academy of Music, known as BAM. Karen Brooks Hopkins, inspiring memoir of 36 years at the world-famous cultural institution, is a great read, and she's here with us now to talk about it and her wonderful career. So Karen, in tough times like these, people really turn to the arts. And of course, people turn to BAM and so many other artistic institutions. Why was it important for you to write this book? You know, it was sort of a remarkable period of time. I was at BAM for 36 years, and really I think that BAM and the arts community in Brooklyn 
really powered up the brand Brooklyn that we know today. And that during my time, we kind of went from Manhattan wannabe to the coolest neighborhood on the planet. So I felt that the story had to be told. The book is filled with all kinds of authors and uh, artists and performances and all of the crazy stories around these performances. Princess Diana coming to BAM, Paul Simon's wow. month at BAM, Ingmar Bergman's work at BAM. So there's a lot of that. And then there's also really the story of Brooklyn and its evolution, the good and the bad. Um, and so I felt that that was really a story worth telling, that it was a great New York story. And um, I was there for so long that I had so many memories and I, I'm proud to have had the opportunity to write it. Well, and we're proud to be able to work together with you. We've worked together with All Arts, WNET's multi-platform arts initiative, allarts.org. And one of the things that we worked on was about the iconic director, Peter Brook. And that was one of the hallmarks of your work at BAM. Tell us about that. Peter Brook was a great director. He recently died at age 97, about um, six weeks ago, two months ago and he had a remarkable run as an artist and we were very proud to present his work at BAM many times. His legendary piece, the Mahabharata, which was nine hours long and was involved building a whole <laughs> theater. There's a whole chapter about that story in the book. And um, when artists like that came to BAM, it really began to change the situation in terms of driving audiences to Brooklyn, to our institution and to see work that was challenging, things that they weren't going to see on Broadway. And certainly a nine-hour Peter Brook play was one of those yes. things. How were you able to get fundraisers and donors to support that kind of work? Because it was different. It was groundbreaking. And, you know, it wasn't something that was something people were familiar with. Was it a tough sell? But you did it. It was a tough sell, but we almost did it based on the fact that it was a tough sell. <laughs> in other words, we would say to people, you know, your friends are gonna find their way to Lincoln Center all by themselves, but they need you to bring them to BAM. So it became kind of almost a macho thing, a, a thing for people to come over that bridge, uh, the Manhattan audience, and then of course we drew more Brooklyn audience. And, <clears throat> and over time we built the youngest audience for sophisticated, serious theatrical work, music, dance, theater, opera. And um, when we opened the cinemas in 1998, it added 200,000 people wow. to the audience. The youngest audience, the cheapest ticket, kept the lights on 365 days a year. Now the movie business has changed. Very much so. But the story of how that transformation took place is also in the book. And as I say, it's a great story of how the arts can transform any neighborhood because the arts bring out the best of what is there. In BAM and then It Hit Me, you talk also about leadership, innovation, even urban revitalization, as you mentioned, about Brooklyn. And under your direction, BAM became, as you said, some a place to go, and also Brooklyn became very different. What are some of the hallmarks of good leadership and innovation that people can find in the book that you think are important? First of all, there's a lot of information about fundraising. There's a lot of information about leadership. In the book, I break down an annual campaign 
and all of the ways that it should be supported. And I think that this is useful information for anyone serving on a board, whether it's the arts or another type of charity. And uh, if you're involved with not-for-profit uh, organizations, there's a lot in the book that I think will interest you. But honestly, what we did was build a brand. What we did was find the sons and daughters of people who uh, supported the traditional Manhattan-based institutions. So what we tried to do was find audiences in three ways and find supporters in three ways. They were uh, people and businesses that had an interest in Brooklyn um, and were, were based there. There were people that simply loved the work and then there were a community people that really wanted the neighborhood to be successful. And the mix of these people joined forces and out of that, we built an incredible base of support. It was really um, a remarkable thing. And part of the story is, is that we were all there for so long. Harvey Lichtenstein, yes. my boss, he was there for 32 years. I was there for 36 years. Wow. Joe Melillo, our artistic mm -hmm. director, was there for, you know, 38 years. You know, we, we all gave it our lives. And that's a great story, too. What does it mean when you fully commit yourself to something over the long haul. Too many times these days, you know, kids move in and out of jobs very quickly. But by staying so long, I was really able to see generations of artists and work and opportunities uh, for, for our audience and for our uh, artists. And to create a world-class arts institution, Brooklyn Academy of Music. So I know you're retired from BAM, but you're not retired. I know that no, very well. That's true. What are you up to these days? I am working on several different projects. Um, I'm actually involved with producing a play that involves John Totoro and Marissa Tomei, and that's been very exciting. It's an adaptation of a Philip Roth uh, book, so that's been pretty wild. I've been doing some work for the New Jersey Performing Arts Center, uh, but my main gig has really been on behalf of the Onassis Foundation. And uh, we have a number of projects in our cultural center, including a digital media lab, a poetry festival coming up, and a podcast called Live from Mount Olympus, which oh, wow. is for tweens. It's on the PRX wow. platform, and it's, it's theatricalizations with a great, amazing cast of Greek myths. So I'm like so busy. It's really exciting. Well, you are very exciting. I'm going to check that out for our public media audience. It's on PRX. That's a part of public media. And thank you, Karen Brooks Hopkins, author of BAM. And then it hit me for joining us here on WLIWFM. I'm Diane Michelli, and I'm turning it over now to Gianna Volpe. Gianna Volpe here. That was great. That was great. Thanks for Authors Night with the one and only Jack Graves. East Hampton's own from the East Hampton Star. His book is Essays from Eden, a compilation of his point of view columns between 1969 and 2021. Jack, thank you for joining us. Quite all right. So the selections of point of view give the reader a wonderful taste of you as a newspaper man and dare I say it, sentient human being. Uh, as well as showcasing moments in both your personal history as well as that of both the community and country at large. Can you talk about choosing the columns, making the selections of point of view? Can I talk about them? Well, I, uh, I was laid off in uh, June of 
I think it was 2020, it's hard to remember. I say laid off, uh, furloughed, I think is the word. And Kathy Kovac, who used to be uh, the star's production manager, suggested that I spend my time uh, collecting some essays, uh, some point of view columns, which I did. I got a lot of help from her and a lot of help from my wife and Isabel Carmichael, a wonderful proofreader. <laughs> and it took me about six months, but uh, I put together about, uh, about 230, 250 columns. All of them, I think, um, with a, a light tone. Mm -hmm. I think it's a rare, optimistic book. Uh, these even days. through even through the tough moments, and and over there in the parking lot, it said something in, on over one of the buildings, optimistic books. And I went in and I said, "Do you want a copy of my book?" They <laughs> said, "No, we don't, but <laughs> we sell other optimistic." It's books. their loss. It's definitely their loss. I absolutely loved reading it. In oh, fact, you. the February 12, nineteen eighty-seven. Back to the City column oh, was my favorite. Did you like it? I did. Is that like a year-rounder's litmus test? That, that yes. Uh, no, you know, I got six weeks of angry uh, letters. I think there were people who said I was psychotic and I should be fired. <laughs> <laughs> and it began to worry me after a while. My wife said, oh, come on, you know. Right, right. Get over it. Uh, but yes. Uh, I have a friend, Huey King, who's the local historian, East Hampton historian, and he said to me, when did Jack, I don't have to ask you when East Hampton changed for you. I know exactly you know. when it changed. February 12th, 1987. And, and as my wife reminds me from time to time, that column really ended up on a positive note. Um, we were at Hobson's Choice, the little restaurant down there, the right, tiny, right. tiny one. And uh, there was a fellow from out of town. And I said, look, uh, I'll show you around. I'll take you to Sag Harbor and show you the sights. And so, I, in the end, I really was <laughs> quite friendly. <laughs> you know, when I met somebody who wasn't from here. All right, so speaking of out of town, how and and why did you come to East Hampton well, at 27? Yes, and I was from out of town, too. Um, my mother told me that uh, I was related to the first clerk of uh, the, the town. You don't uh, say. Dating to 1686. And I tried that out on, there's a, a club here called the, uh, oh, what is it, the... Well, I was going to say the sons of, but it's the, not. The daughters the, uh, of the American Revolution? The lost Revolution? tribe of oh. Akabonic. Oh. The lost tribe of Akabonic. And even though I'm related, and I'm not all that proud of it because David Rattray has now discovered that I think most of the ancestors of the locals were enslavers. Right. Um, but even Which is when surprising. I, a lot of people don't know the now, history. Now they're beginning need, to know. Yeah, all yeah. you need to do is go to Shelter Island, right? And, and uh, they'll so, visit Sylvester Manor. And so even though, um, you know, so that even did, that did not work with them. They said, well, were you born in Southampton Hospital? 
I said, well, no, I wasn't born in Southampton Hospital, but I can claim the first clerk of the town trustees as, a, as an ancestor. Okay, I, that's they a said, loophole. Sorry, Jack, you don't, you yeah, don't you qualify. Need, you need to both have ancestry however many generations back yeah. and, and be born you have to on have the been, soil. I was uh, born in Putnam Valley Hospital in Bennington, Vermont. And how did you come to How East did Hampton? I come to East Hampton? Well, I was in uh, living in the East Village. Okay. Uh, way back before it was gentrified in the mid 60s the first blackout occurred when i was there actually i was rather impressed everybody was very kind to one another it was 1965 lindsay was the mayor no lights no nothing and i didn't i wasn't afraid at all i thought it was a rather interesting experience so anyway, I was working as a uh, copy boy for the Times. Um, and you used to be able to go from copy boy to reporter if you were enterprising enough. Right, right. Uh, I don't think you could when, when I was there. It was about 65, 66. Anyways, somebody who was a stringer. Right. Who <coughs> worked weekends for the Times. <coughs> excuse me, out of Riverhead, needed an apprentice. So it was between me and Ronnie, Ronnie Ginsberg. Ronnie Ginsberg said, well, I want to be a poet. And that was what, Lo Long Island Press? What was uh, the paper? He, he worked for the Long Island Press. Oh, thank you. And he was a stringer for the Times on weekends. Got it. And um, so Ronnie and I talked it over and I said well I'll go out to Long Island I'd, I'd never been and um, I took a bus and of course like everybody else I said boy it's a Long Island you know got to Riverhead and Art Penny uh, Larry Penny's older brother there's there's a, there's a local name for there's you there's a local name greeted me and um, took me back to meet his father and um, I'd been a you know an English major just like everybody else and uh, they they said that's good enough <laughs> that's it i know can you chase no, the story uh, you know nothing to show them and you wrote a you wrote a lot i mean when you first started oh, well, you were actually, writing like what seven seven stories how i learned uh, art penny would be playing golf at baiting hollow and i would be writing in the end after about a year seven stories a day not long ones but seven by actual a count. day a day. Oh my God. And uh, so when I came here to show Ev Rattray, and, late, you, and you joined the, the Joy yeah, Department. Had, you know, I had this many to show him. And uh, before hiring me, he said, well, it's not so much the quality, but the quantity that I like. It's important. You're hired. Yeah. So, so can you talk? Us when a, can you start? Tell us a little bit about Ev, about Everett Rattray. Oh, he was a wonderful guy and uh, very, very intelligent. He wrote wonderful books that everybody should read. Sounds I, like I don't you. Know if I wrote about it in that column, but he wrote The South Fork, The People and I, I forget exactly. You did. You did mention his book the, in there. What the rest of it is. But that is a book, just like the Gideon Bible, <laughs> placed in all the motel rooms that everybody who comes out here should East, read. East End required reading, my friend. Yes, required reading. So let's let's talk about the Joy Department. That's what you call sports uh, yes. reporting. Oh, wait a minute. I only have 
Okay. So I just, I wanted to just hear a, a short uh, quote from you. What would you say to those looking for their own joy department in life? Looking for the joy department? Well, I think what most people would say is do something you like, love to do, and, and devil take the hindmost. <laughs> I forget who, there's a there's a great quote, I don't know who says it, find what you love and let it kill you, right? Uh, find what you love and let it kill you, yeah, something uh, like that. Well, there you are. Well, all right. I'm I've still only, here, though. I've only had uh, <laughs> one editor, really, who printed my copy exactly as written, who did not try to render simplistic my sublime constructions, uh, as, as you would say, Jack. Uh, that editor was Georgie Manu, and now I know why. Uh, Merci beaucoup. My daughter. Monsieur... Jacques, okay. Okay. je me roule en balle à vos pieds. Okay. Gianna ah, Volpe. je me roule en balle à vos pieds. <laughs> Hi, this is Diane Michelli in the tent at the East Hampton Library's Authors' Night. We're going to be talking to Tova Felchu, the author of Lilyville, Mother, Daughter, and other roles I've played. For years, Tova has been entertaining Broadway audiences with performances in Cyrano, Yentl, Pippin, Lend Me a Tenor, and so many others, as well as in film and television. Now she's taken on a new role of author with her first book, a memoir titled Lilyville, Mother, Daughter, and Other Roles I've Played. Thank you so much for joining us, Tova, to discuss your new book. I'm thrilled to be here, Diane. I'm thrilled to be in the beautiful Hamptons. I'm thrilled to be with people who love to read. What, what could be better than ha having an educated United States? Not much more than that. Well, Lilyville is your life story is seen through your relationship with your mother, which for some of us can be complicated, but also wonderful. How would you describe your Lily Tova relationship? We started out as two, two trees, one little and one very big and strong on opposite sides of an acre of land, let us say. And she lived long enough for our branches to bower together. It is the journey of a mother and daughter uh, to understand each other. A mother who felt you couldn't have it all and a daughter who felt she could. How did they get along? They didn't. So this is all about solving that. And in between each scene, because I write, I write the piece as I write the piece in the form of a theater piece. Instead of chapters, I give you scenes. Instead of a forward, I give you an overture. Instead of a final chapter, I give you a final bow. Instead of acknowledgments, I give you a cast party. In between are what we call in one. In vaudeville in the old days, actors would sing and dance in front of the front curtain while the scenery backstage would change. The in ones are the stories of my career with Barbara Streisand, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, whom I recently played before the pandemic when she was alive. The only person who's not there is Dr. Ruth Westheimer. So I have to write a sequel to that and add Funny Girl in there. Because I'm about to go back to Broadway for my 10th show. And May of 2023, I will celebrate my 50th year on Broadway. And those stories are in this book, Lilyville, along with the universal of the mother-daughter relationship. Well, we're so excited to see you in Funny Girl and to read your book. And how did your relationship with your mother, and as a mother, a daughter and a mother, shape your your career? Oh, my God. And when I said I wanted to go to Juilliard, my mother said, you're not going to a trade school. That's how it shaped my career. I was a philosophy major at Sarah Lawrence, started graduate work at Columbia, and won a scholarship to the Guthrie Theater as a McKnight Fellow while I was waitlisted at Harvard Law. 
So I, I, I rode the horse in the direction it was galloping. And that's how I became a classical actress. I mean, really, I was classically trained by Michael Lagan and, and uh, came to Broadway in 1973 with Chris Plummer and Cyrano. Played, opened at the Palace Theater. It was pretty thrilling. Pretty thrilling. The WNET group has worked with you on all arts, and we uh, filmed and brought to our audience the soap myth, which you did a t reading with, with the great Ed Asner. I did. Yeah. What was that like? It was a great privilege. He's fierce. He always tried to kiss me on the lips, and you know what I did? I let him. Why not? He used to, he used to come in and would whisper in my ear, he'd go, room 288. You know, he's very funny, very sexy, and I always wore uh, a nice sweater, a little dowdy sweater to play Esther Feynman, the head of the museum, for the first act, and then I took the sweater off with this sexy red dress to play the Holocaust denier, Brenda Goodson. Goodson, indeed. I, I loved it. He, he, he deserved every Emmy. He deserved being president of our union. He, he was a remarkable soul, dedicated to the greater good. He really walked the walk, like Olda Meir. He really was a utopian socialist in many ways, and that took courage in this country. Absolutely. Well, you can see Tova and Ed Asner in the Soap Myth. It's going to be broadcast again on February 20. I'm sorry, Friday, September 23rd at 8 p.m. on All Arts and on the All Arts streaming apps and AllArts.org. So we're excited about that. We're excited to see you in Funny Girl. Funny Girl starting September 6th with the great Leah Michelle. Lucky, lucky me. Well, thank you so much, Tova Felchu, for joining us on WLIWFM with your book, Lilyville, Mother, Mother, Daughter, and Other Roles I've Played. Come, come take a really close look at the inside workings, not just of a career, but of a parent and a child trying to work it out and succeeding. It's a beautiful story. Thank you so much. We're live from the East Hampton Library's Authors' Night on WLIWFM. Good evening, this is Michael Mackey of 88.3 WLIW-FM with David Marinus, best-selling author of When Pride Still Mattered and many other books. His newest is Path Lit by Lightning, The Life of Jim Thorpe. Welcome, Mr. Marinus. Thank you, Michael. Great to be here. David, you've said many times that you don't pursue a writing project unless you feel obsessed, passionate about it. What drove you to pursue and research Jim Thorpe? Well, you're right. Uh, you know, all my books take about four years, and I live with that subject for that time, so I have to be obsessed. I sort of consider this the third book in a trilogy of books about sports figures who transcend sports. So you mentioned what Pride Still Mattered about Vince Lombardi. Uh, that offered not just a chance to write about a great football coach, but also about competition and success in American life and what it takes and what it costs, sort of a larger theme. Uh, with Clemente, it was about the rare athlete who is is a real humanitarian, an actual hero as opposed to a sports hero. And with Thorpe, I saw the chance to write about not just arguably one of the greatest athlete in world history, someone who did things that no one else has ever done before, but also a chance to explore the Native American experience through the, the his life. Jim Thorpe was a hero and won many medals at the 1912 Olympics. But a year later, the medals were taken away from him. Why did that happen? But first, let's start with how yeah. did he win all those medals? How good an athlete was Jim Thorpe? Well, he, he not only was an All-American football player and would become a Major League Baseball player, 
but he won the decathlon and the pentathlon at Stockholm. That meant he competed in 15 events, wow. which is stunning over you know a couple of weeks. Um, and he, it's hard to measure decathletes because those point systems change decade by decade. But he was so far much further ahead of his opposition um, than anybody before or since. Um, so he was terrific at all-around athlete. He could he could he could jump. He could run. He could throw weights. He could do it all. If we had uh, 21st century measurements, it'd be interesting to see. It surely would. How he measured it up. Right, but today. you you know the training, the diet, the sure. equipment, all of that's so different now. But to get back to your question about how he lost his medals, now, yes, um, he played bush league baseball in the Eastern Carolina League in 1909 and 1910. Now. Hundreds, literally, Michael, hundreds of college athletes were playing baseball in the summer for money, but they were doing it under aliases. Jim Thorpe played under the name Jim Thorpe. Dwight Eisenhower played under the name Wilson in the Kansas State League. Um, so it was nothing unusual for him to be doing that. Um, but when it came out after he won his gold medals, um, they not only immediately took his medals away and the trophies, but several important people in his life lied about it to save their own reputations, including his coach, Pop Warner, the famous, you know, youth football is named right. after Pop Warner. Very famous figure. He was Thorpe's coach. He knew exactly what Thorpe was doing. And yet when, it, when, the, when the crisis came, he said he was ignorant of it. But we were kids growing up and uh, baby booming youth. We would constantly read sports books where they'd refer to Jim Thorpe as the greatest athlete of the 20th century. Right. But the story was that, well, he didn't know that he had committed uh, this mistake, but he did play professionally and, and he got what um, he did not deserve, but there was no way to rectify the situation. But you're telling us it could have been. Well, not only that, but technically he shouldn't have lost his medals. Now, this is just a technicality, but the rules of the time said that any question of professional versus amateur had to be raised within 30 days after the Olympics. It's in the rule book. His was, came six months later. So even technically, um, they shouldn't have taken his medals away, but morally, they should not have even more strongly. Yes. Well, that's never been in dispute morally. Yeah. What about the movie starring Burt Lancaster? Did that reflect his life story accurately, and, and did he benefit from it at all? Um, no to both of those things. Um, not to say it wasn't a sympathetic movie and that Burt Lancaster, who's a movie star, was also a good athlete. So his portrayal of Thorpe was not um, wrong in certain respects, although, of course, he's a, a white American playing a Native American. Um, but um, not only is it inaccurate in, in its retelling in so many ways, large and small, um, but also it... It's from the perspective of Pop Warner. He's the narrator of the movie. He is the white savior who, at key points in the movie, you, it leaves the impression, oh, if only Thorpe had listened to Pop Warner, he would have um, assimilated into white society better and been more successful, which is complete baloney. We're speaking with David Marinus. His newest book is Path Lit by Lightning, The Life of Jim Thorpe. And if you have read his biography of Roberto Clemente, of the Rome 1960 Olympics, where he speaks about so many famous uh, figures, Wilma Rudolph, 
uh, Rafa Johnson, Cassius Marcellus K. Jr., not to mention the 1960 Olympic team and Oscar Robertson and, and Jerry West, Walt Bellamy. You'll want to uh, pick up this book and read it voraciously. Tell us about uh, when you were pursuing your Vince Lombardi uh, bio. You said you went to Green Bay, Wisconsin itself to uh, experience that winter. Yeah, it was after the um, 1996 election. I'm also a political writer. And I turned to my wife and uttered the immortal loving words, Linda, how would you like to move to Green Bay for the winter? <laughs> to which she responded, burr. But we did. And it made all the difference. I mean, really immersing myself in that society and that one company town really allowed me to understand what the Packers meant and what Lombardi meant to Green Bay. Well, that was a terrific book, and I'm not the only one that thinks so. How's the Washington Post doing these days? Well, that's a loaded question, Michael. I mean, it's, um, you know, it's uh, COVID affected all the newspapers, and so did the Trump era and the end of the Trump era. But I would say that it's, you know, it's it's still producing terrific journalism, and it always will. And you're still there. I'm an, I'm an associate editor. I'm like a, a professor emeritus there. I come and go, but I'm working on a big story right now for them, yes. Thank you very much, David Marinus, author of Path Lit by Lightning, The Life of Jim Thorpe. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Michael. And this is Michael Mackey with 88.3 WLIW-FM Radio. Go. I'm Brian Cosgrove, and we're broadcasting live from East Hampton Library's 18th annual Authors' Night. We're in Herrick Park in the village of East Hampton, and uh, we're going to be on until about 7 o'clock tonight. And it's my pleasure to have a, uh, an old friend of mine and a, uh, a guy very familiar to folks in New York, and now he's going way beyond that, is uh, Mike Lupica. Mike Lupica spends a fair amount of time on the east end of Long Island. He's still writing his column every Sunday for the New York Daily News. Mike, it's great to see you. Ryan, how are you? Oh, man, what a pleasure. It's been a long time. It is. Um, you, I hope that you're establishing some sort of order out of this chaos. What, you're, you're here this evening? Uh, or in general. <laughs> no, no, author's night or day. Or what, I, 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 let me say, it was a little different during COVID. So it's, uh, but it's, listen, the library is a great place. I'm a library kid. I grew up in the stacks in Oneida, New York, and... You go to the stacks and you, you dream that someday you'll tell your own stories and I've been able to do it. Uh, you know, during the pandemic, libraries really stepped it up, you know, between Zoom stuff and, you know, keeping, you know, keeping folks occupied. And libraries are really just like the nucleus of any community. You know what? I've always called them the capitals of dreamers. Dreamers go to library. You read, you, you, I, again, I would just look for a quiet spot and think that someday I might tell my own stories, and I've been able to do that. And and by the way, I have no other skills, so uh, if the writing thing falls apart, I have nothing to fall back on. Well, you're not bad on the radio and TV. Yeah, but I don't count that. Uh, writing is like a real, no, 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 TV. When I, I tell people, when I used to do my kids' books, I used to say kids, if Mr. Lupica can get his own TV show, anybody can. I, no, I love being on the radio. I I, um, I did it. I forget how many years I did it on ESPN Radio. I was on FAN for a while. And then after the sports reporters went off ESPN, 
Mitch Album and Bob Bryan and I did about five years of, of a sports reporter's podcast. And then I just, I got tired of hearing my own voice. Oh, I know that feeling. And now I just... I, your voice, my voice. <laughs> I go upstairs and I shut the door and I tell my stories. I'm Brian Cosgrove. We're at the 18th Annual Authors' Night put together by East Hampton Library. We're live in Herrick Park under the tent, and it's my pleasure to be here with Mike Lupica. Mike is a staple with the New York Daily News. He still continues with his Sunday column. And now Mike is writing with James Patterson. Is this your first one with him or no? The book we have in front of me today is The Horsewoman, which is Jim and I. It's our first book together. We have already finished two more. We are finishing our fourth. We are about to start our fifth. House of Wolves comes out next March, and it's a, uh, a succession-type novel about an extremely powerful family in San Francisco that owns the newspaper and the football team, and a lot of bad stuff ensues when the daughter inherits the team, and the brothers don't like that very much. Well, you got me already on the next one. How about this one? What is this book about? Jim and I had breakfast one day. We had never met. We hit it off. He said, your daughter rides, right? I said, yes, she does. I said, my daughter is a show jumper, which is one of the reasons why I'll be riding until I die. And um, he said, how about a mother-daughter? And we came up with this idea about two great women, two horses, one dream of going to the Olympics. And... The competition, they said they'd never compete against each other, but they are elite riders trying to get to the Paris Olympics. And a whole lot of stuff happens along the way. We take you into a world that's been my world since my daughter started riding. And I think no one has ever written a book in, in that world. And Jim said, put me on the horse going over the jumps. And that's what the two of us did. I'm talking to Mike Lupica. We're at the Authors' Night tent at Herrick Park in East Hampton. He has just done his first book with James Patterson. There are many more to come. It's called The Horsewoman. Me and Mike go way back, way back, way back from when I was over at the other radio station in Amagansett, and it's always a pleasure to see you. Mike continues with his Sunday column. What's the name of the Sunday column again? Shooting for the Lip. Only like, for a thousand years, yeah. And occasionally you're still doing Morning Joe on MSNBC? Yeah, and, and I'll tell you something. Joe is not only a friend, he's been great to our books. He he had a lot to do with kickstarting the horse show. Jim and I made an appearance, and it was very important to our book. He is one of the great booksellers left on television. He promotes them, he sells them, he's great. Mike, it's always a pleasure to see you. We will talk soon. I hope so. Mike Lupica, please tell your wife, Taylor, I said hello. I'm going to see her in about 20 minutes. <laughs> Great to see you. Always a pleasure. Mike Lupica here at uh, the 18th annual Authors' Night in Under the Tent in East Hampton. There's got to be, I don't know, a couple of thousand people walking around. I can't believe how many people are here. There's over 100 authors signing their books. And... We're going to continue to be broadcasting. We're coming up to the top of the hour. We're going to get a live five-minute newscast from uh, NPR News. It's a gorgeous day to come on by. There's plenty of room for folks to come here at uh, Herrick Park in the village of East Hampton. Tickets are available. 
Again, there's over 100 authors. I just finished speaking with Mike Lupica. Also, Carl Bernstein is here and many, many others. So come on by. There's food and drink and authors. Maybe we can send it back to the table. I'm not sure if we can do that. I'm here with Gianna at the table where we've been interviewing so many authors. There are thousands of people here tonight speaking to authors, getting their books signed. It's very exciting. I'm going to be interviewing Katie Corrick in the next hour, so I hope you'll stick around for that. And Gianna also has an exciting interview coming up. Gianna? I'm going to be uh, interviewing Jeffrey Lyons in the next hour. So exciting. This is an unbelievable event. I hear actually Neil deGrasse Tyson is going to be around. Not sure if we'll be able to grab him. We'll see. I, I think Michael has him on his list. Uh, but definitely, if you're in the area, consider making a stop over at Herrick Park. Um, it's a beautiful evening. It's the 18th annual East Hampton Libraries Authors Night, which is a fundraiser for the library to support the many wonderful programs that they do all year round for the community. It's a great community event. It's very exciting. If you like books, who doesn't? Uh, and, it's and a great it, place to come. As I understand it, this night, including the dinners afterward, will raise 10% of the library budget all in one night. It's a very, very exciting event, and I am so grateful to Jack Graves uh, for his interview. I know you had uh, Topa Feldshue. Um, who else did you interview this I time? had Topa Feldshue, Karen Brooks Hopkins from the Brooklyn Academy of Music. She's amazing. She's also a part of the All Arts Editorial Advisory Board, and she has done so much for the arts community throughout our region and is a real powerhouse and even though she retired she's not stopping <laughs> i understand exactly what that is like uh, as does diane i'm sure um how many minutes do we have left before we have the about news? one minute before we go to the npr news at the top of the hour we um, can't wait to have you exciting back that Brian Cosgrove just interviewed Mike Lupica. We had Bill Bratton, the police commissioner. And we have so many other authors that are going to be coming up in the next hour. We'll be here till 7 p.m. tonight doing interviews. Myself, Brian Cosgrove, Gianna Volpe, Michael Mackey. Brian's joined us here at the uh, table again. James Patterson. What an extraordinary crowd of people is here tonight, I, you know? How did you, you were over there and now you're over here. How'd That's you right. do that, Brian? Cordless mic. Cordless mic, yeah. It's, this is an extraordinary event, you know, and there must have been quite a deal putting this all together. 100 authors under the tent, you know, it's it's extraordinary. And you talked to Dennis Fabisak. Yes. The broadcast. He's amazing. He's done an incredible job with the East Hampton Library board and everyone else and here we go now to the NPR news you're listening to WLIWFM Southampton over the air at 88.3 serving Eastern Long Island and Southern Connecticut 96.9 in Western Suffolk and streaming at WLIW.org slash radio and your favorite streaming platforms this is listener-supported WLIWFM, Long Island's only NPR station.
back live here in Herrick Park in East Hampton for Authors Night on WLIWFM, joined by Jeffrey Lyons, whose book Herring Hemingway and Me: Letters, Anecdotes, and Memories of a Life-Changing Friendship. Talk about the relationship that Hemingway, Ernest Hemingway, not only had with your father but with the entire family. I was struck by how, like your father, Leonard, who hardly ever dabbled in the gossip of his subjects, uh, you spent very little time discussing the way that Hemingway's life ends. Uh, In fact, I I found myself so engrossed in the text, it almost slipped my mind. I was so uh, focused in on uh, the medical journey that he was on towards the end of his life. Was that purposeful? Yeah, I think so. I mean, most people know that he took his own life. At the time I was in Spain, he had arranged for me to travel with his godson, Antonio Ordonez, the greatest matador right. of the 20th century, for my money, because he knew that as I was 16, he knew that I was interested in bullfighting. Right. I had seen my first bullfight, and I can't defend this at all, right. but I'd seen my first bullfight with Richard Condon, who wrote The Manchurian Candidate in Pritzi's Honor, and he explained it to me. And it turned into seven summers touring with Antonio up and down Spain. It changed my life. And I wanted to do something that would reveal the other side of Hemingway. And he and my father corresponded for 35 years. Hemingway and my father met in the early 30s. And they were introduced, I believe, by Sherman Billingsley, the owner of the store club, nightclub. And my father came to be the only journalist he trusted. He knew that Hemingway, that my father knew, that Hemingway knew that my father would never write salacious things about him as other gossip columnists would. Right. And in fact, he sent my parents rough drafts of some of his books before they went to the publisher to get their input, if you can believe that, which is true. I certainly can, especially after reading your book and seeing the the correspondence that they had. You know, just to talk about La Fiesta Brava just for a second, you tried to help lead Antonio Ordonez's grandsons away from the family tradition, uh, bringing them out here to Long Island, an attempt that failed. But it brings me uh, back to Papa a bit. Uh, I remember there was always a portrait of his hanging over the bar at Tweed's in Riverhead, and it made me wonder, did Papa ever come out to Long Island? I suppose you would know. This I would not know. I did not know that. I'm, ha- I'm happy to hear that. It didn't really end in failure. I knew that it was impossible to get uh, Francisco and his brother Cayetano, who are Antonio's grandsons, away from the family business, so to speak. Their father had been killed in the arena, and the mother wanted them to try to, to get... They were the barramores of bullfighting, that family, because uh, Antonio had four brothers, all bullfighters. And we sent him to a camp in Maine. And before and after the summer in, in Maine, they stayed with us in Orion. But I have I have two capes. And you remember last summer, a bull was loose on Long Island? I do. Well, that wasn't a fighting bull. And it was like a, like a poodle compared to a wolf. But I was ready if it came by us. I have two types of capes. Our, but we, Francisco, would practice on the lawn. And they became two of the biggest stars of the late 90s and early, early 2000s. In fact, 60 Minutes did two stories on them, including a full one hour with the late Bob Simon. So it was in the family blood. You saw it. I, I saw that you had uh, kind of gotten the first hint by seeing them use your jacket as a cape in the front yard. Getting back to Papa, you met Joe DiMaggio at one of your parents' parties before you met Ernest Hemingway, but finally made his acquaintance at seven. Can you share the story of your meeting? Was it when you all went to the Finca together? No, one time my parents gave a party for Ethel Barrymore. And I was about five or six, and I awoke in the night, and I went into the living room. And I looked around, and the only person I recognized was Joe DiMaggio. Right. <laughs> and I walk in my pajamas, and everybody's hush-hush. 
I walked up to Joe and I pulled at his coat. I looked up. I said, Mr. DiMaggio, you're the best guest here. And everybody laughed. And 40 years later, I saw Joe at a card signing and he called me over and he said, would you still say that? And then he took my son under his arm and they talked out of my earshot for 10 minutes. I said later, Ben, what did he say? He said, Dad, he told me what you were like at my age. The people that I so cavalierly brushed off that night, by the way, included Ernest Hemingway, Adlai Stevenson, uh, let's see, who else? Uh, Edward G. Robinson, Marlena Dietrich, and a few other people of that ilk. But Joe D., none of them could hit a curveball. Joe could hit a curveball. Speaking of which, uh, you've met and, and spoke at length with Orson Welles. What was he like? Orson was my dad's closest friends. His daughter, Beatrice, and I correspond regularly on email. Uh, she lives in California now. And Orson taught me the basics of bullfighting before I traveled with Antonio. So I really hit the ground running. Orson was, except for sports, Orson was the world's greatest authority on everything. He took over a room. He was a genius way ahead of his time. And he, he just was a brilliant person to be around. Well, I'm really grateful that you got this book down, that we we're able to read these things. Uh, before, before I let you go, I want to thank you for including the advice uh, Hemingway gave your brother George about writing a book, which was, you keep your sentences short by pretending the words are being tattooed on your back. What a fa fantastic detail. Uh, before I do let you go, can you tell us a little bit about how you came to use Liam Neeson as a forward Well, writer? I use that for, for advice in all the books I wrote. I wrote some baseball trivia books. I have a book out about my beloved Boston Red Sox. Keep the sentences short. And it's interesting. I am reading Death in the Afternoon for the first time. I never got around to reading it. And I find myself dis disagreeing with some of the things Hemingway wrote about the Bulls. But I remembered that that was, first of all, an early book of his. And it was written in the early 30s when bullfighting was very different. He also has a lot of run-on sentences, which are atypical for Hemingway. But I can't imagine anybody who is not an aficionado getting through the details because it's an astonishingly detailed book. But he said, be true, be, be true, find the truth in people, and take it something about ev everything you know about people and try to put those in your characters. Sounds easy, doesn't it? It's not. You know, I'm glad to hear that because I do... Uh... I am quite a fan of a run-on sentence. All right, we're going to move forward now with our next interview. Gianna Volpe, WLIWFM. Hi, this is Diane Michelli. I'm here with Katie Cork, author of Going There. Katie, of course, is a journalist and an author of many books, including her latest book, a memoir. She's taking a photo right now with one of her fans who she's signing books here at her table. Hello, Jennifer. What do you think about Katie? I think she's wonderful. So do I. She's a great inspiration. What is she going to say? I'm standing right here. Thank you, Jennifer. <laughs> so, Katie Cork, so great to oh see God. you. Well, should we tell everyone that we used to work together at uh, NBC and Diane? So fun to see ago. you. Likewise, likewise. Thank you so much for joining us yeah. on WLIWFM. So, tell us a little bit about your book. Well, it came out last October. The paperback came out this summer. And, um, it took me three years to write. It was an incredible experience. Um, you know, I wanted people to understand sort of what life was like from my perspective, because I think if you're a public figure, as you know, Diane, you know, a lot of things get written about you, but you can never really share your perspective. So I decided I was going to write, you know, sort of what it felt like to be me in all these different situations, whether it was trying to get into the television news industry, you know, dealing with challenges along the way, 
losing my husband to colon cancer, losing my sister to pancreatic cancer, starting stand up to cancer and um, my philanthropic efforts, having, you know, being a single mom, uh, kind of navigating this very, uh, you know, dramatically changing media environment and kind of my whole journey and uh, getting remarried. And so it was really um, cathartic and, and I don't know, uh, important for me to write and tell my story. Well, I'm so glad that you did because as you said, we work together and we know things, a lot of things that other people don't know. Some we want them to know, some we don't, but it was a great book. And what was the hardest thing for you to write about and what was it the most fun? I think probably um, the hardest thing was reliving when Jay was diagnosed with colon cancer. He was just 41 years old. Our girls at the time were six and two. And, um, you know, just kind of going through the pain of seeing someone you love kind of slowly, slowly kind of um, deteriorate from, from such an advanced uh, diagnosis of cancer when he was so young and so much much of our life ahead of us so that was really hard but I you know I wrote it Diane because I wanted other people you know I'm not alone a lot of people go through terrible loss um, and lose someone really close to them and you know I have regrets about how I handled it that I never had a really serious conversation with Jay. And I hope this helps people, you know, who are going through something like that. Someone uh, who I, whose book I just signed said, you know, when I had my child, I went through a similar sort of postpartum experience, fearful you were gonna hurt your baby. And she said, I never talked about it to anyone and you made me feel less alone. And so, I think the book has been, I hope, helpful to people and instructive um, and hopefully at the same time kind of enjoyable to read. Yeah, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of heartbreak, a lot of honesty, but there's also a lot of fun. Yeah, some of that fun. I think I was, I'm pretty funny. Yes, I don't know you if are. you think so, but I enjoyed writing about like the booking wars and how intensely ridiculous it was. You were with me back yes. in the day where the competition was fierce, yes. that we'd go to incredible lengths for the big get. Yes. That yes. was funny because yes. I thought, looking back on it, I couldn't believe some of the things I did and some of the things we did yes. as a network and our competitors did. It's 24-7. It's competitive. It's exhilarating. It's exhausting, but it's fun. Yeah. And now you have your own company. So yeah. What are you doing with that? Well, I have a newsletter that goes out to more than a million readers, a podcast. We're doing videos. We collaborate with purpose-driven brands who care about some of the same issues I do, gender equality, environmental sustainability, racial justice, health, preventative health, um, you know, information. So it's really fun to be able to, to point my lens at things. And I think the media landscape has become so fractured that I'm lucky I got into it when I did and was able to establish a certain reputation. It's much more difficult to become a household household name today. And I'm trying to, you know, be a source of trusted information for people in an era where so much is not trustworthy. 
such an important important part of journalism. So thank you, Katie Cora, author of Going There, so to to joining you. us here. On, oh, likewise. Awesome. Thank you. Same okay, to you. Bye, Love you. This is Diane Michelli, East Hampton Library's Authors Night, right here on WLIWFM. Bill Mackey with 88.3 WLIWFM at the East Hampton Library's 2022 Authors Night with Dwight Chapin. His book is The President's Men, The Memoirs of Nixon's Trusted Aid. The book we've been waiting 50 years for, filled with new details on every page and beautifully written, it will force us to reassess Richard Nixon yet again. Why do I read this? Because Douglas Brinkley and Luke A. Nichter said so. They're the authors of the Nixon tapes, and Douglas Brinkley is a, a prominent historian of presidents. Mr. Chapin, welcome, and thank you for being here. Well, thank you very much, Michael. It's great to be here on this great night. Tell me about your history with Richard Nixon and how you first met. Well, I, I started with Richard Nixon when I was a, a student at the University of Southern California. He had lost to Jack Kennedy, and he went back to California, and he decided he needed to keep his political credentials alive, so he ran for governor. He got clobbered. He lost to Pat Brown, and then he moved back to New York. Years later, I, I happened to end up being in New York, and uh, I went down and volunteered, and Rosemary Woods, his secretary, said, sure, come down after work and uh, help us out. And the, the person that tutored me and taught me all the ins and outs of the correspondence section of Richard Nixon's life was no other than Pat Nixon. So I, I got to know the Nixon family early on, and that's how I ended up being his personal aide. For some historical context for you millennials out there, Vice President Richard Nixon ran against Senator John F. Kennedy in 1960 in one of the closest elections ever, and uh, Senator Kennedy won the election. There are some controversy surrounding the vote in Illinois. <laughs> yes. In 1962, Nixon ran for governor of California. He lost, and he said, you won't have Richard Nixon to kick around anymore. But yet, he appears again in 1968 and is the Republican nominee for president. Tell me about that campaign. Yes, the 68 campaign uh, was an uh, incredible campaign. It was very, very close at the end. Uh, Nixon was running against vice president of the time, Hubert Humphrey, Lyndon Johnson's vice president. Humphrey was a terrific guy. Actually, Nixon and Humphrey had been friends for years. They knew each other from the Senate and from the time that Nixon had been vice president. Uh, but it was a close election. Nixon... Uh, squeaked through in the early morning hours. Uh, it, in this particular case in 1968, it was Illinois again. Uh, in 1960, as you point out, you know, he lost the presidency because he didn't carry Illinois. In 1968, he carried it, and that's one of the reasons he won. What was your role during the campaign? I served as uh, Mr. Nixon's personal aide. I was in charge of everything that had to do with his, the arrangements around the man himself, uh, making sure that everything was kept on time, that he was where he needed to be, that he had his remarks, that he was uh, made the phone calls he had to make, the follow-up letters, every, everything that was, that was kind of in the bubble right around him. And then you took a position in the administration. What was I that? I did. I was invited to be appointment secretary. And I was in charge of the president's uh, daily calendar, the long-range calendar, 
I also was in charge of the uh, television office and the whole advance operation. We had uh, quite a sizable group of advance men uh, that uh, helped when every time the president went out for events, and I was I oversaw that office also. We're speaking with Dwight Chapin. He's the author of The President's Men about his relationship, professional and otherwise, with Richard Milhouse Nixon. I suppose the highlight of your experience in the Nixon administration was the trip to China. Tell us about that and what role you played there. Yes, I, I uh, played the role of acting chief of protocol. And Dr. Henry Kissinger was in charge of all the substance on the trip and the communique and so forth that was to be released at the end. I was in charge of all of the arrangements. And when they started off planning the trip to China, uh, it was felt that there would probably be anywhere between 9 and 18 people that would go. By the time we went, there were 391 people that made that trip. So the logistical efforts associated with the trip were uh, phenomenal. Uh, I had an incredible privilege to make, be, even make the trip. And then I had the additional uh, privilege, if you I call it that, of, of having dinner with Cho Enlai on three or four different occasions and really getting to meet the Chinese leadership. And Joe and I, in fact, praised your ability to schedule and pull this whole situation together, the logistics uh, beyond our immediate imagination, my especially book, in those days. Yes, uh, my book details uh, quite a bit about going, the, the China uh, trip and the, the obstacles that we overcame in order to make it happen. Now, your book has characters in it other than President Nixon. H.R. Haldeman, he kind of comes across in memory as a... As, uh, I don't know. Evil is the right word, but you know him well, and you knew him yes, well, as a friend. I, I, I think uh, I, I knew Bob Haldeman quite well. Uh, we were great friends, and the thing about Bob was that he he was a disciplinarian. He had one client. That client was Richard Nixon, the President of the United <laughs> States. He was his chief of staff, and he really didn't care about anything else other than making sure that the highest level of execution was accomplished for the president. So uh, as a result of that, he was very tough, very demanding, and received a lot of criticism for his style. He was President Nixon's Tom Hagen, you might say. Yeah, I guess so, yes. <laughs> now, in your book, there's so many other characters, we can't go over them all. Tell us about John Dean. Apparently, well, you referred to him in your book as duplicitous. I thought he was a hero and revealed the Watergate break-in and, and, and brought liberty to our great nation. Well, if there's any cult culp uh, culpability in terms of Watergate, and there's plenty, uh, when you trace it all back, it goes to John Dean. John Dean knew about the break-in ahead of time uh, when it happened. He did not tell his superiors. He did not tell the President of the United States. It was almost a year before Dean told Nixon what had happened. And uh, had Dean spoken up at the outset, we would have never had what we now know as Watergate. President Nixon was pardoned by President Ford Labor Day weekend, 1974. Do you think that was the appropriate action? Absolutely. 
it served Nixon had uh, received the ultimate punishment when he had to resign. And my, that's my feeling. I get asked that quite often. I had to go to prison. I spent nine months in prison. And people say to me, well, how do you feel about the fact that Nixon didn't go to prison? I say he, he had his own sentence. Just the fact that he had to resign, that proud man, what he had to go through, that was enough of a sentence for Richard Nixon. Give us an overview of uh, Richard Nixon. Was he intelligent? Was he trustworthy? Was he smart? How, what was it? Well, you know, Richard Nixon uh, evokes uh, all kinds of reactions from people depending upon uh, how old they are, uh, what their political parties are, and so forth and so on. Nobody will take away the fact that he was a brilliant man. He was a strategist. He he had uh, a vision for foreign policy that led to the opening of China. That was good. He said 50 years ago, he said, uh, in 50 years, we're going to be adversaries with the Chinese and we need to be able to talk to one another. He, he could see into the future and he did great things for this nation. He, he established the, the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, OSHA. Uh, he, he put the, in place the Environmental Protection Agency. He brought about the 18-year-old vote. He did a number of different things that were really uh, legislatively quite, quite advanced. Well, many thanks to you, Dwight Chapin, the author of The President's Men, The Memoirs of Nixon's Trusted Aid. Can't wait to read the rest of the book. So many more questions to ask, and we'll ask them after I'm done with it and have you on the radio with us again. Okay, Michael. Thank you very thank much. You. Uh, That's Dwight you. Chapin. I'm Michael Mackey, and this is 88.3 WLIWFM, live from the East Hampton Library's Authors' Night. And now, Brian Cosgrove. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Mr. Mike Mackey. Okay. It is my pleasure to be sitting here with John DeLeo. John, thank you for your patience. Thank you, Brian. It's a pleasure to be here with you. John DeLeo's new book, and this would make number seven for you? That's correct. This is John's seventh book, and I just love it. It's called, There Are No Small Parts, 100 Outstanding Film Performances with Screen Time of 10 Minutes or Less, and he spans from 1935 to 2019. So you have written exclusively, am I correct, on uh, classic movies? Is that pretty much yeah, your genre? My, my heart's in the classic film era, and several of the books just focus on, say, the 30s to the 60s. But a couple of them, like this new one, uh, span the decades and go to the present day. So as I'm getting older and writing uh, more books, I want to make sure I'm not losing an audience. I, wanna, I don't want to just be locked in that era as much as I love it. So if I can write about that era and extend into the present day, it, I, I just feel like it's a better way to keep going. Gotcha. Gotcha. This book, the, the beauty about this book, well, there's many great things about this book, is that it's one of those books that you can open anywhere. Yes. Which is, is a lot of fun. <laughs> right. And when I first got a copy of it, and I knew I was going to have the pleasure of talking to you, John DeLeo, uh, was that I went, I searched right for one of my favorite small parts but very dynamic and that's Alec Baldwin and Glenn Gary Glenn Ross and of course there he was because yes. you couldn't leave him out of in a book like this right that is kind of one of the ones that I, that comes up a lot when people say well you do have Alec Baldwin in Glenn Gary and <laughs> yeah. luckily I do right uh, and often I do have the ones that people are going to ask me about occasionally not but often I say well they're not in it for that movie but they're in it for another movie I bet and so I, I didn't want to uh, give uh, slots to the same per like two slots 
thoughts to one person. It was like, what is the sort of quintessential example for that actor? And then write about 100 actors instead of 95 and a couple of repeats or something like that. You know what I mean? <laughs> I do know what you mean, because I thought about that. And then when I when I and I was going to ask you about it, but then I said, wait a minute, he's got them. It's 100 different roles and actors yeah, because yeah. there would have been easy or not easy i know you weren't looking for a, an out but yeah. it could have been, you could have overlapped sure on performances absolutely i also could have overlapped within the same movie because some great films like it's a wonderful life or uh, um the godfather there is a number of people that could have been the person i picked and then again it's very subjective like what did what spoke to me and who was the person i wanted to talk about whether it's parts of, like about their whole career as well as the, that performance performance you know sometimes you just have a passion like i want to write about that person i want to write about that movie you know i just want to remind folks that uh, i'm brian cosgrove we're broadcasting live from east hampton library's authors night it's their 18th annual we're in herrick park in the village of uh, east hampton there's still time to come on by folks are going to be here till 7:30, talking about their work and signing their books like my friend here john DeLeo, his new book which is 100 outstanding film performances with screen time of 10 minutes or less. And it is so much fun to just open it up anywhere and look for either, you know, parts that you've thought about or just to find out other actors in here. And of course, the second one that I thought of was that uh, John Marley, who played the part of the yeah. film producer in yes. The Godfather, who had that famous scene with the horse's head in the bed. What a, right. And the dinner he had with yeah. Robert Duvall. Well, that's a good example of, like, I, I chose someone who's unlike everyone else yes. in the movie. There's so many great character actors in the movie, most of them playing mobsters of a certain type. Yeah. And I thought, well, John Marley is unlike anybody else in this movie, and everyone remembers the horse, but <laughs> do they ever talk about the guy in the bed with the horse? And if they do, <laughs> do they know the actor's name? And wouldn't it be nice to put a spotlight on John Marley in his you know sliver of immortality you know in this role absolutely when he has that dinner scene with yeah. Robert Duvall yes the tension in that I mean that yeah. really is as tense as any part of the in yes. my opinion yeah as any part of the Godfather right when he talks to Duvall like that and Duvall says well thank you very much yeah. you know uh, mr. Corleone likes to get bad news right away yeah. I have to leave he he has no idea who he's dealing with. Exactly That's the beauty right. of John Marley. He rules a kingdom called Hollywood, but he has no idea what he's dealing with when he's with the mafia. And it's such a fascinating character. And then, of course, we watch him taken down in a big way. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Do we ever? Yeah. So what are some of your favorite roles in the book? I mean, we talked about Alec Baldwin. We talked about uh, the producer, uh, the film producer in The Godfather. Do you have any favorite? Well, some of the ones I love are the film debuts. Like We see people at the beginning, like Robert Duvall as Boo Radley in To Kill a Mockingbird. Right. Or Gene Wilder, abducted by Bonnie and Clyde in his film debut. Or just ones like uh, Marilyn Monroe and All About Eve. She's only in it for three minutes. Okay. But when she's such a beam of light in that movie. And she's funny in a way unlike everybody else's in that classic. And you think, how can it just be three minutes? But yeah. that's all it takes. And so, um, and then there are unknown character actors like John Ray and Emery Parnell, people that it gave me such joy to, like I said, put a spotlight on these people for three pages when I feel nobody really ever mentions their names. So. Oh my goodness, it's, a, it's so much fun. And again, I'm talking to John DeLeo. His new book is called, There Are No Small Parts, 100 Outstanding Film Performances with Screen Time of 10 Minutes or Less. It's so much fun. From 1935 to 2019, you can just open it up anywhere, and it's just a ball. It's a couple of pages, each one. There's a picture of the actor in their role. It's so much fun. Do you Now, this is your seventh book. 
uh, do you have, are you on your eighth one yet? Do you have an idea yet? I have an idea that I'm formulating, okay. and I, I'm going to try to start it uh, when all the promotional stuff for this book is finished, which will probably be around somewhere in the late fall, and then I'm going to try to jump in before the holidays. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to keep it. We don't want to jinx it. We're just going to... Yeah. You've, you've got number eight is it's, it, it's, it's starting stewing. to churn. It's stewing in my brain. Yeah, well, churning, stewing, whatever. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, John, I appreciate I appreciate your time, and this book is just so much fun. Again, it's John DeLeo. There are no small parts, 100 outstanding film performances with screen time or 10 minutes or less. Such a pleasure wow. to see you. Thank you so much, Brian. Absolutely. Great to see you. All I'm right. Brian Cosgrove. We're broadcasting live from East Hampton Library's 10th, no, 18th annual uh, Authors' Night Under the Tent in Herrick Park in East Hampton in the Village. And we are WLIWFM, and Gianna Volpe has got a guest. Taking the handoff from Brian here at Authors Night, uh, right in Herrick Park in East Hampton. Our author with us right now is Sheila Flynn DeCoss, the author of Rose Alone, depicting the great upheaval and expulsion of Acadian people settled in parts of Maine and Canada known then as Acadia in 1755 by Governor Charles Lawrence and one young girl whose family was ripped apart uh, with surviving family members sent to both East Hampton as well as settling in Guilford across the Sound. Thank you for joining us. Um, thank, you so, <clears throat> thank you so much for having me. I think... So it was a fantastic companion actually to Tom Clavin and Bob Drury's nonfiction book, Blood and Treasure, focusing on Daniel Boone's life and happenings to the South and west of Rose through the time of the French and Indian Wars. It felt like a young adult's introduction to this period of the colonial story and was so rich in detail. I'm curious how you put your masters in library sciences to use, if at all, in writing Rose alone. I, I definitely had to use a masters in library science, uh, <clears throat> but I also had to use my feet to go to Acadia and talk to Acadians and get some more information from them. And I also went to uh, Lafayette, Louisiana, where the Acadians eventually, some Acadians eventually settled. So I really wanted to get, be sure that the history in it was accurate. But uh, basically, I mean, the story is not a heavy with fact, fact story. It's a story of a young girl who gets stuck in East Hampton, if you can imagine being thinking of East Hampton as being somewhere where you get stuck. Right, but she, right. But she was made to be a servant here. Right. And she was, she was certainly uh, stuck. In fact, I was utterly gutted by the ending without giving anything away. Can you tell me if it was a struggle for you to decide Rose's uh, romantic fate and if you ever considered uh, another for her than what you ultimately decided? You actually hit it right on the head, the nail on the head. I had a terrible time making that final decision. I really did. You really are very insightful. <laughs> I, I don't know. I got into the another relationship which she had, and I just thought, oh, she can't. But I finally, finally, you know, decided to end Went the it. way she did. We yeah. won't give it away. Yeah. Uh, the nearly sold out Rose Alone, by the way, I noticed that. You had a young lady at the table getting her copy, and I think there's only one left Something at like the that. table. All right, so can you tell us about the conversation that you had with your son, David, that led you to write Rose Alone in the first place? 
<clears throat> well, <clears throat> at that time, uh, David was a reporter for the East Hampton Star. Oh, so that he, brings us right in a circle. We he, start by uh, started by talking to Jack Graves. Yes, exactly. Uh, and uh, Dave was just happened to notice somehow, having living here and being an is, interested in history himself, that there were people from Canada, Acadians, who had been placed here. And I thought that was. It was really sort of interesting, and I honestly wrote the book because I really wanted people in East Hampton to know about that particular period in history because really hardly anybody knows about it. So uh, I just decided to, you know, do a lot of research and find out if that actually was true. And I went back, you know, East Hampton uh, Town Library has wonderful, you know, uh, records. So I went back to make sure that that was actually true, that this, you know, a family of Acadians had lived here. And then after I discovered that, I didn't follow exactly what happened to the first family that lived here. I invented the story from right, there. Right, right, of course. Yeah. yeah. You know, just to give another uh, shout to East Hampton Library, they don't, they don't only have great records. I was amazed to read all of the different actual artifacts yes. that they have in their collection. And to also bring it full circle to uh, Jack Graves' book, Point of View, he was talking about uh, the first time that the East Hampton Star used photographs, and he was mentioning uh, a whale hunts and, and whatnot in that period of time, and that definitely reminded me of Rose Alone and the whale hunting scene, yes, uh, exactly. where, where in which if you saw a whale and you shouted whale ho, you were given part of the share. Yeah, exactly. That was, and, it, and, it, and it, in the end, it was very helpful for Rose. Was this your first book? Yes, I've done a lot of writing, but I have not published a book before. Yes. Well, Mazel Tov to you, <laughs> you Sheila so Flynn Dacos. Um, are we ready to? Uh, we aren't. So what's what's next then? Well, I'm thinking about Sag Harbor now. <laughs> okay. Uh, so you're thinking about the Sag Harbor history there? Have you yeah, started to look into it? I have, but I'm not going to reveal anything at this moment. Okay. Well, I, appre <laughs> I appreciate that. All right. So, so you're in the chair. You're going to write about Sag Harbor. Is it going to be another young adult's? I think it, if I, uh, you know, I think it will be a picture, picture biography, about 60 pages. You know, uh, they're very well received by young people, and so on a subject though. So yeah, this is going a, to be a young person. woman, a young woman in in Sag Harbor. That I've done some research on. Sheila Flindicoss of Rose Alone, her first book. Buy it before she writes her second. Gianna Volpe, W L I W F M. And it is my pleasure, I am very excited to be talking with uh, John Avalon. John is not only a senior political analyst and anchor at CNN, among other things, but his new book entitled Lincoln and the Fight for Peace is, to call it a page turn, it doesn't do it justice, John. Well, thank you, Brian. I appreciate that. It is an exceptional, exceptional book. Thank you. In a time of uh, political discourse, let's put it that way, uh, it'll it'll ring, bring you through the ringer because the emotions that I went through with this book was uh, it brought a sense of hope back to me that Good. politics, there could be some compromise in politics. And that would be a nice thing to see these days. It would be. I, you know, I... I appreciate you, you saying that. I mean, that's obviously what every writer would love to, loves to hear is when the book gives someone hope, makes right. them feel like, you know, we'll get through this. And that's why I believe in applied history, too. It's, you know, giving us some perspective on our current problems. 
Right. Um, and we've, you know, part of the point of this, studying the Civil War is it's a reminder we've been through worse before. Okay. We'll get through this. But, you know, Lincoln, who I describe as a soulful centrist, um, we're not going to find another Lincoln, but we need some to find people of a similar spirit. Yes. Reconciling leaders who know how to bridge divides. Yeah. And, and the way Lincoln used humor and logic and scripture to oh do goodness. it. The way he balanced moral courage with moderation. Oh, Those yeah. two things don't always go together. And the way I think he reminds us that kindness is an essential component to effective leadership. Absolutely. I, I, I walked away loving the guy. Well, I, I, I have as well. And now, am I right? There's approximately 16,000 books <laughs> yeah. written about Abraham Lincoln. He may be the most written about person ever. Other than Jesus. Other than he, Jesus. He's, he's, he's second to Jesus, near as we can tell. Um, yeah, and so as my wife, uh, Margaret Hoover, you know, is, is quick to point out, you know, why, why would someone be foolish enough to write a book about Lincoln? We need this book. Thank let, you. Let me come right in and say we need this book by John Avalon, Lincoln and the Fight for Peace. You have charted territory that has not been struck for Lincoln, I think, like it should be. Well, I appreciate that. And, yeah. and in fact, it's true. You know, I, I went and I talked to guys, the guy who runs the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop in, in Chicago, and uh, it's only a bookstore dedicated to Lincoln. And I told him the idea, and he said, well, I'll be darned. No one's done Lincoln the Peacemaker before. <laughs> and there's a really good reason, you know. It, the reason is is that he dies five days after Appomattox, so he doesn't have right. a chance to implement his vision. But what the book is about is, is Lincoln's plan to win the peace after winning the war. Yes. It's his vision for national reconciliation and, 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 and you know, how to reunite. Yeah, absolutely. I just want to remind folks that we're broadcasting live from East Hampton Library's Authors Night. I'm Brian Cosgrove. It is my pleasure to be here with John Avalon. You may know John from uh, CNN. He's a senior political analyst and anchor. Recently, I saw you do some morning shows. I yeah. think you filled in. You did a great job. Thank you very much. Um, I had fun with that. Yeah, and, uh, and his new book is uh, Lincoln and the Fight for Peace. Is this book number four for you? This is book number four and then uh, two anthologies uh, with uh, two buddies of mine, uh, Errol Lewis and Jesse Angelo called Deadline Artists, which was America's greatest newspaper columnist. Okay. So depending on the account, it's the fourth or the sixth, but I love them all. Yeah, and this book is just uh, uh, tremendous, uh, Lincoln and the Fight for Peace. And we kind of alluded to it in the beginning of our conversation, is the fact that, you know, empathy, honesty, humor, and humility and decency could be the most practical form of politics. Yeah. Or the golden rule as well. Uh, playing the politics the golden, of the golden rule. Oh, my goodness. Can you, wouldn't that be great, wouldn't it? <laughs> it? It's just that, it's just that simple. It's just that profound. It's just that difficult. There you go. I mean, I think we live in a time where our empathy has been tested, and I think we need to be honest about that. Yeah. Um, but we also need to remember that that's ultimately the way out. And, and just to see Lincoln's example, the power of his example in the middle of a civil war, to see a man refuse to give up on the idea that there's more than unites us than divides us as Americans. What he says about the South, he says, I'm not anti-South, I'm not anti-Southerner, I'm anti-slavery. Yeah. And then he says, they are just what we would be if we were in their situation. Right. That is a, a, a profound depth. And, and what he does is, you know, sort of, he, he shows us, you know, you can meet hate with love. That's right. That's right. I mean, talk about humility. Yeah. I mean, that it's extraordinary. And the Moral empathy, humility. Yeah. I mean, his quotes are endless. You know, and I think one time he said, he said, God made so many ordinary people like <laughs> us. He must like ordinary people because he made so, so many, many of, of us. Of, yes. Putting himself in that oh, category. Yeah. He, he was very self-deprecating. His humor yeah. was never directed at other people. Tearing never. Them down. Yeah. It was always self-deprecating. And that's the most disarming and effective form of humor. Right. You know. So uh, once again, we're talking to John Avalon here at uh, East Hampton Library's author's night the book is lincoln and the fight for peace and i just i love it uh there is a story that 
John, I got to tell you, I got a lump in my throat when I read it. And that was when, uh, when Richmond fell. Lincoln went through with his son, Tad, found out there was a, um, some Confederate prisoners were nearby, wanted to see a Confederate general in his full yeah. dress. It turned out that the Confederate general was uh, Barringer. Barringer, yeah. And his brother was in Congress with Lincoln. And Lincoln sat down, and this is, you know, the South is falling. Lincoln is at his wit's end. He's just been through four years of war, and he's here talking to this guy as a humble, you know, not, not, he was just so regular with this guy, and he was talking about sharing a desk with his brother. Yeah, he said he was my chum. That's right. A very unusual word, but he's been an old friend. And then he turns to him and says, he turns to this Confederate general who has been in prison, in a prison camp, and says, is there anything I can do for you? <laughs> John, yeah. I tell you, I had to put the book down. I got a lump in my throat. And it turns out that that general, in fact, said, you know, if there's anybody who could, it would be you and couldn't think of anything. And I'm, you wrote the book, so I don't know why I'm telling you this. But Lincoln, <laughs> Lincoln wrote on a card to Stanton, the Secretary yeah. of War. If you come across this Confederate general, please do what you can because he's a, you yes. know, he's a friend. So he was going to hand that off to Stanton. The general went out after talking to Lincoln and started to break down and cry. Yeah, he burst out crying. Oh and that was, that's a profound moment. I love that moment as well. That's one of the stories I oh. tell. Because it, it is so, first of all, it's not a well-known Lincoln story. And I try very hard. You know, I don't, you know, a lot of times people repeat the same two dozen stories about, you know, folks. And I, I don't, you know, there's, there's a deeper well we can go to. But that story, I think, shows that not only the common touch, but the way he understood that reconciliation, ultimately, even in, in the wake of a war, is going to be personal. It's about the personal example, particularly that the president said. It's not just his words, although his words are beautiful. Right. He's a poet of democracy. It's the personal example he set and the ripples that that sent forward. Mm -hmm. You know, when General Sherman says, of all the men I ever met, he was combined, he combined greatness with goodness. Right. And it was his goodness that made him beloved. It was his goodness that made him stand so much taller than everybody else. And that's a beautiful example of it. And I think also that uh, from your book, I found out that the general who surrendered to Sherman, when he found out that Lincoln got shot, said, we just lost our greatest ally. Or yeah, the South. It was, yeah, it was General yeah. Johnston. And it was one of the last holdout armies. And when he heard about it, and it was not an uncommon view in the South. It was far from unanimous. There were people oh, yeah. who rejoiced at his death, let's but, be real. But but many realized that, because Lincoln was, was, was determined to have a magnanimous peace. He wasn't going to let the Confederate leadership off the hook, the people who'd misled, but he wanted amnesty for the rank and file, and he wanted to trade that in exchange for voting rights, beginning with black right. Union soldiers. Yeah. So he had this very detailed vision, and, and by connecting the dots, you see its sweep, and then its ultimate vindication. Yeah, absolutely. Some of the smarter Confederates realized that Lincoln was just going to do good. And the fact is, John, I love this book so much. I'm gonna, I would love to get you back maybe sometime. I Anytime. Know you, I know that you're, you're here on the East End at times yep. with, with your Sag wife, Harbor, Margaret, yep. and we, we, we run Firing Line. You I, do, which we love. Okay, so I'm going to... Hometown, hometown uh, you know... Good, yeah, good. Station. So, so, you know what? If, if I could get you for a longer period of I time, I would love to talk more about Done this deal. book. Because we have to, we have to go on from you this. You got it. But, John, it's Brian, a real pleasure. Thanks thank for everything. You. And this is a great event, so it thanks for sure all you do. Absolutely. And thank you, John. John Avalon, the book is called Lincoln and the Fight for Peace. I couldn't recommend it any more highly. It is just tremendous. And, again, we are here at WLIWFM broadcasting live from the 18th annual East Hampton Library's Authors' Night. WLIW FM 88.3 and 96.9.
Gianna Volpe here at East Hamptons Authors Night with Florence Fabricant. We're talking about the Ladies Village Improvement Society cookbook, Eating and Entertaining in East Hampton. I know that you told me this story once already, but please do share with us how it came that you wrote LVIS cookbook. Well, they came to me with this project, and it was a fortuitous moment because I wasn't working on another book, and I've always loved the LVIS, and the idea of doing this book for them was an interesting and happy assignment. And uh, it was designed by my daughter, who's here with me, and uh, she did a great job, and uh, the LVIS ladies who help organize the book and uh, find the recipes and reach out to members and celebrities, local celebrities for their recipes. I couldn't have done it without them, but it was a great team effort. Is there a uh, summer cooking tip you'd like to share with the listeners? Sure. Eat local. Amen. Eat local. You heard it here. Uh, for the 70,000th time, I'm Gianna Volpe. Thank you so much for listening to the broadcast here on WLIWFM. I'm Brian Cosgrove. I'm sitting here with our general manager, Diane Michelli, and uh, Michael Mackey. What an extraordinary event. This uh, has been so fun. It's unbelievable. And there are so many people here, thousands of people, hundreds of a uh, hundred authors. Yeah. And it really speaks to the power of the book and writing. It's so incredible. The book is still alive. Yes. The oh, book is still alive no matter how you read it. I read books, <laughs> hardcover, softcover. I read books on my phone. I read books on my computer. By all means possible, right? Absolutely. Support the library. I go to the library all the time. I go to the bookstore. Yeah. I think, you know, during the pandemic, um, the libraries really stepped it up. You know, there was so many things that they did via Zoom and so many things that folks can do from home. And libraries really have shown that they are such an integral part of the community. And now, Michael, as you've seen, and Diane as well, we're seeing live musical performances uh, on a weekly basis at, at libraries, uh, not to mention so many diverse maybe exercise classes, meditation, yoga. I mean, they've gone so far to serve the community. They are much needed, much needed institutions. The East Hampton Free Library has been here since 1897. That's and amazing. It remains an institution of, of love and accessibility. You could be rich, you could be poor, you could be somewhere in between, but the, a library is there for you. But in order to sustain it, they have events like we're having tonight, and it seems to me that it's a very successful one. When my children were growing up, we used to like to do two adventures. One was playground hunting, and we looked for different playgrounds all across Suffolk County. Oh, but if fun. the weather was inclement, not suitable for that, we'd go library hunting. <laughs> and we would go visit libraries from what? West Islip to West Hampton, from... Of the from Mastic Shirley, Copang, all that. across, and it's, it's so much fun to bring your children into the library. There's so many uh, things that attract their attention, and of course, we want to encourage our youth to continue to read. These yes. authors here tonight were terrific, weren't they, Gianna? Read and be merry, my friends. It's seriously <laughs> the best thing that you can do for yourself. I was so grateful to see Sheila Flynn DeCoss, for example, our the last interview. Uh, that I did before Florence, who has like a young adult book. She was almost sold out, and there was a girl buying 
her uh, copy of Rose Alone. It just warms my heart to see the next generations getting in there, doing the important stuff, which is reading, informing themselves, uh, visiting you know other other places in their minds from wherever they are. Uh, what were some of the highlights for you, Brian, so far? Oh my goodness! I, I, I the, the, all the interviews that I did, uh, John Avalon. I'm a huge fan of John Avalon from CNN, the political analyst, and his new book. And we spoke about this earlier, Gianna, yes. off the air. This is such a tremendous book, John Avalon's new one, Lincoln and the Fight for Peace. It really gives you some hope and so much political discourse these days. It's just a tremendous, tremendous book. And I talked to um, John DeLeo about his book about actors that only had about 10 minutes or less in uh, their roles, but made such an impact on Hollywood. They wouldn't that, be, yeah, yeah. There, you know, there, there wouldn't be a movie if it weren't for these people. That's right. Seeing you with Katie Couric. Oh, old friend. Honestly, it was so great to see her. And her memoir is really, really heartfelt. You know, she's had a really interesting life. She writes about it so well in her book. It, it is heartbreaking in times. It is very honest. That's why it's called Going There. Right. And it's also hilarious because she's pretty funny. Yeah. And it was my privilege and pleasure to work with her at NBC and it's great to see her doing well in her new media company and also my uh, colleague Karen Brooks Hopkins who I work with on all arts she's a powerhouse in the arts world it's great to talk to her and Tova Feldshue I mean my goodness a huge star and just so gracious oh and goodness. a great story and really relates her life and her relationship with her mother to her work and the roles that she plays. I can really relate to that. You know, I'm very close with my mom and you know, we have, as everybody mostly does, a complicated relationship, but a loving one. And she writes really beautifully about that. Michael, how about you? What were your highlights? Well, I did uh, like very much listening to John Avalon, the Lincoln's and the fight for peace. And I can't tell you how many times over the past half century I thought to myself in frustration, why couldn't Lincoln have lived long enough to see through the second half? It was oh, only halfway done. What right. if? Yeah, the right. what if. When I was a freshman in, at SUNY Brockport, Gamal Abdel Nasser was assassinated, and it was September 1970. He had been a very influential Middle Eastern figure, the president of Egypt. And, but our professor told us, you would be surprised how infrequently when a major leader uh, passes away, it does not change the course of history, that we all move on. No one person can really shake things that much and, and change events of the world. And I raised my hand as an 18-year-old and said, I feel to this day that we're suffering from the assassination of President Lincoln think, and him not being able to follow through. I think there's something and to we, that. We feel it every day. I think there's we something feel it to all that. the time. Yeah. The authors here tonight uh, were so articulate in, uh, in expressing not only uh, their books themselves, but how they fit into society today. So it was, it's really been wonderful to meet them in person and speak. We saw Dwight Chapin, who worked for President Nixon very closely, hug Carl Bernstein. Yeah. <laughs> so how's that? Yeah. Yeah. He's, and he amazing. spent nine months in prison, right? That's right. He yeah. did, yeah. yeah so I had it, you know, I really enjoyed talking to Mike Lupica as well. Mike Lupica is working now with James Patterson. That's amazing. And their first book together is called The Horsewoman. And uh, I haven't seen Mike in over 15 years. And Mike Lupica is a staple in the Daily News, the New York Daily News. And he's such a nice guy. So it was nice to reconnect with Mike Lupica. And I saw you with Jeffrey Lyons. Yes, it was what unbelievable. 
Jeffrey Lyons. Um, I want to just say uh, some folks that I missed out on talking with. I was bummed we didn't have time to talk to Tom Clavin, though he'll certainly be on with us uh, oh, yeah. soon. He's oh, he's got two books that I still need to read that are that are new, um, as well as uh, Nelson DeMille and his son Alex is a writer as well. Following um, in the father's footsteps. I know. And yeah. I love that so story. There are so many authors who are from this area, Long Island and the East End. True. In particular, has Steinbeck. such a strong literary history. Steinbeck. Vonnegut. Kerouac. F. Scott Fitzgerald. Kerouac. Capote. Capote. Capote, of course. I mean, just the list goes on and on and on. I mean, you can go to places and you could be sitting at this table where they were writing their book. That's right. You know, and also so many books have been written about Long Island and the beautiful area that we live in. Oh, my goodness. Such an amazing history. And this author's night is a part of that. This oh. is one of the premier... Literary. literary events of the year in the country. That's right. It and, really as is. A, and we're here in Herrick Park in the village of East Hampton. So nice. I mean, right who's got it better than it. us, right? And a beautiful night. I spent my many goodness. hours here with my baby Dorothy, who's now 30. <laughs> <laughs> it's, been, it's really I'd like to uh, thank Dwight Chapin, Bill Bratton, and David Marinus for being so kind to come on with us. Absolutely. Oh, Jack Graves as well. How could we forget? Yeah, yeah. yeah. one man himself. Yes, yep. absolutely. It's been fantastic. And and thank you to all of you who came out to support the library. This event raises, a, I think, 10%, uh, Dennis told me last week, of the annual budget for the library. So that's, yeah. that's And for stuff. listening to WLIWFM and supporting WLIWFM. That's We're right. We're here for you. 24 yep. hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, all because of you, the listener supporter of Long Island's only NPR but I don't remember station. the phone number. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, and and I, since we're going down the roster, I want to thank John DeLeo. Yes. Uh, his book was just tremendous. Uh, John Avlon, a pleasure. Mike Lupica, what a thrill it was to talk to him as well. So we're just about a minute away from uh, the top of the hour for another five-minute live newscast from uh, NPR. And this has just been a tremendous, tremendous event. East Hampton Library's 18th annual Authors Night, WLIWFM broadcasting live for the past two hours. I'm Brian Cosgrove. I'm here with Gianna Volpe, the heart of the East End, our general manager, Diane Michelli. Thank you, everyone. For Michael being with Mackey, us. the award winning Michael Mackey Woo, from Long yeah, Island Morning right. Edition. I'm Every looking at a basket that I shot many <laughs> basketballs at. <laughs> 50 years ago. So every many week, stories. Every weekday morning you can hear Michael from 7 to 9 a.m. I want to thank, of course, Michelle, Delaney, Kyle, and uh, Brian Bannon, Ooh. our newest member of our staff, for all that he does. And thanks so much for listening. We are WLIWFM.